to rebuild. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as Christ submits to, or as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Henson. Just a reminder uh, before we pray and, and jump into this really important text that if you've ever thought about going to Israel, we're, we're thinking about a trip in 2018 and after the, the final prayer this morning, if uh, you're interested in finding out more about that trip, we're going to meet right here in this room behind me immediately following that final amen and the meeting will be about five minutes and uh, it'll be just a quick information interest type meeting and... Um, if, if you're interested in that kind of thing, we hope to, to be able to answer all your questions. Uh, the other thing uh, I want to do is, uh, you know, some months ago it was announced that we were going to uh, join a work that was begun in the north side with the north side Church of Christ, just right down the, the road, right down 281 from us. And uh, this team was made up of three couples of folk that had been members of the Northside Church for a number of years. David Ingram, who had been a missionary from Northside in Fortaleza, Brazil, had come back and had piqued their interest about possibly forming a team. All of that took place, and we have partnered with the Northside Church in supporting the San Luis Brazil mission team. And uh, can we have uh, those folks stand? Where, where are the Hills and the Dyes and the Gibbons? Can we get you guys to stand? Over here. We're so glad to be a part of what you're doing. You like to see a mission team that fills up an entire large row in a church auditorium, right? Well, they, they've got some things that are going on with the mission committee, the ministerial staff, and the elders uh, this afternoon. And, but we're, we're just so blessed to be a part of what it is that God is doing in their lives in directing them to plant a church in San Luis, Brazil. And so we're going to remember them in prayer right now as we, we bow our heads and join our hearts again and ask God to bless us as we study His Word. Father, You're great and You're good and You're a mystery and a mountain and You are bigger than anything that we can imagine. You're infinite and eternal and immortal and loving and kind and gentle. You're like a father and you're like a mother. You're a shepherd 
and a Savior. You, you are beyond the goodness that our imagination can wrap its arms around. And yet you revealed yourself to us in ways that not only educate our minds, but burn like a blazing fire in our heart and in our soul with all of this that you are as you draw near to us and us to you. Thank you for loving us in order for us to love you and to, to have every blessing that all of that love entails. And as we study this text, as disciples of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth, we're asking that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that when people look at our marriages, they get an idea of what the gospel is all about. And to this end, we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's an old story about a, a couple that going to counseling. Uh, but the wife was refusing to talk to her husband, and he just couldn't get her to talk. And all of that led to them making an appointment with a counselor. And week after week, counselor tried to get the wife to open up, but nothing was working. And after about the seventh visit or so, the counselor walked over to the woman, gave her a big old kiss on the lips, she lit up, got up, walked over, hugged her husband, and started telling him about all the stresses that she had in her life and all the things that was upsetting her. And she just began to open up after all of these, these, these weeks of silence. And the doctor said to him, Mr. Jones, that kiss represents the kind of treatment that your wife needs every day. And he thought about it for a minute. He said, well, Doc, I think I can get her here on Monday and Wednesdays, but I'm not sure about the rest of the week. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to have a great marriage. But the Bible has some very specific things to say about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus becoming one flesh with your spouse. Now, uh, as you know, we've been in Ephesians for the last uh, couple of months. In the first half of Ephesians, first three chapters, Paul is at that 5,000-foot level and talking about all of the things that God is accomplishing in the gospel. And all of that is sort of summed up in this thing that he says in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. That what God is doing is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, God is putting back together in Christ everything that has been ruined by sin, everything that has been fragmented by sin, everything that has been blown up by sin. God is reverse engineering all of the in injury and all of the hurt and all the fragmentation, all of the brokenness and bringing wholeness back to it. And the evidence of the power of God and the work of God and that the gospel is true, all of that is evidenced in our lives. We can talk about the gospel all we want, but until people see changed lives, the, the, the witness is only about half powerful. And so one of the things that, that Paul says is when people look at our church, they look at, at the MacArthur Park Church of Christ, and they see the way that people come together, not just white, but... but uh, white and, and black and brown and all the colors that are represented and all the socioeconomic standards and levels of education and uh, neighborhoods. You know, the fact that our church encompasses about five counties is a great thing. But when people look at the church, they get an idea of what the gospel is all about. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 3, his intent, that is God, is that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers, the authorities, and the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, one of the ways that the gospel is seen in the visible 
and through the eyes of the invisible world is when it looks through the window that is the church and sees the gospel. Now, that's also true, not just about the church, but it's also true about marriage. What he's going to describe in Matthew chapter 5 is to be understood as what happens in a marriage that is made up of two disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And sort of a blanket statement for you to take home today is this. People should look at a Christian marriage and get an idea of what the gospel is all about. People should be able to look at your, your three-year marriage, your five-year marriage, your 35-year, your 60-year marriage, and be able to get an idea of what the gospel is all about. Paul is using the, 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 the metaphor, the illustration of marriage to help people to understand what the gospel is about. And so he gives this great illustration, but notice what he says in verse 32. He's been talking about marriage, but what he's really talking about is Christ and the church. Now, in this passage, from verses 21 through 33 of chapter 5, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a meaning, a motivation, and a method. First, the meaning of marriage. Through the ages, and it's not just in the ancient world, but it's in our time as well, the modern world, there have been lots of reasons for people to get married. In the ancient world, as well as in the modern world, one of the reasons that you get married is so that you can create the family that you want to have. You, you create the, the kind of kids through the right kind of DNA and the genetics. and you know this, These two people are a good mix, and they come together and they create the kind of kids that are going to be high-achieving, successful, and so on and so forth. And, and basically, one of the reasons in the ancient world and in the modern world that people get uh, married is to... It's not for love, but it's for the right DNA. And in that kind of a marriage, uh, because it's not for love, but for the family that you can create, you don't really need the love or the romance with that person you're married to. That's why you can have uh, you know, something going on outside of that marriage, and everyone is okay with it. So you have kind of this, this dynasty-building reason for marriage. A second reason is political protection. You see this all the time. You see it in the, the ancient world especially. You're married to forge alliances. You married somebody in order to keep their country from going to war with your country. It was to protect your political power. It was to garner even more political power. I mean, think about 1 Kings chapter 11, and you got King Solomon there. I mean, can he really be a husband, a true husband, to 700 wives and 300 concubines? The answer is No. <laughs> I mean, it's an easy one, right? No, he can't be. I mean, the reason that he married all of those women was in order to protect Israel and to extend the borders and to garner power. And it's very self-serving because he's doing it not only to protect Israel, which is probably the most popular reason given, but he's also doing it to protect himself. You're not going to take your son-in-law and, and drive him into the ground because he's married to your daughter. Well, then a third reason is, uh, is, is for romance. Much more modern, but you get married for romance, you get married for love, you get married for the passion. And one of the things that you could say about all three of these, even that last one, is that they're very self-serving. They're all about you. I mean, go back to the first time you sort of connected with somebody of the opposite sex. You know, it may have been middle school, and back in middle school, there was a girl, if you were a guy, there was a girl that you saw across the room or at the lunch table, cafeteria, that you wanted to, 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 to make contact with. And so what did you do? You got your best friend to be your emissary, and you wrote a note to that girl, and you said, do you like me? Check the yes box, check the no box. 
You pass it to the emissary. He takes it to the girl. You wait, you wait, you wait, you wait. Here comes lunch. Here comes PE. Here comes after school. And at some point, you're hoping that this note is passed back. Sure enough, here comes her emissary to your emissary. Your emissary hands you the note, and you open it up, and the yes box is checked. Now you have a reason to live. (laughs) Or think about that first kiss. You remember the first kiss? You're elated because... That person likes you enough to kiss you. And in your mind, you're thinking, in that first kiss, I am so affirmed as a human being right now. That's what you're thinking. Now, very self-serving. Paul has a different kind of a goal when he writes about marriage. He says down at the end of the text in verse 31, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the what, church? It's easy. It's three letters. And the what? Two will become one flesh. Now we know, we've heard that before. That goes all the way back to the very beginning, to creation, to Genesis chapter 2. Moses is writing. And he's writing that God created everything and it's good. Except for one thing. God looks down on the loneliness of the man. There's not a creature in the world that is a fit partner for the man. The loneliness is not good. The only thing that's not good in all of creation. He puts the man asleep, takes a a bone, a rib, from his side. Man's in a deep sleep, creates the woman. Man wakes up. He brings the woman to the man. And this very profound relationship in marriage is created between a husband and a wife. That word united could actually be translated in a lot of ways as glued together. The Hebrew word devak is about being glued together. So you think about all of the layers that's the woman, all the layers that's the man, and you put them all together and glue them together, and it becomes like plywood. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons why divorce is such a painful, lifelong sort of painful experience. It's because if you're a carpenter or ever worked with wood, decking on a roof, whatever, building a shed, and you had to rip plywood, you can't really separate those, those, those veneers, those layers of wood, without, without somehow hurting the, the in- integrity of the entire thing. And that's, that's sort of what divorce is like. Lives being ripped apart from each other. And, and in marriage, because they are being glued together, in marriage... These two are becoming one, reflecting the oneness that is found in the Trinity, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are together in such harmony and happiness and companionship and celebration with one another. And that is one of the things that takes place in marriage. It's a woman pouring herself into a man and a man pouring himself into a woman. And regardless of how difficult that that might be at times, that is better than a one-night stand ever thought about being. And that intimacy takes time, and that intimacy is the product of shared experiences. It takes time, and it takes hard work to get to know another person beyond what's your favorite color, what's your favorite Ben and Jerry ice cream, you know, what's your favorite TV show. It takes time to get to know how somebody thinks and how they feel in ways that reveal their character, in ways that show how they respond to hurt, what it is that breaks their heart, and what is it that makes them angry what it is that makes them happy. It takes time to build that kind of intimacy. And not only that, it's shared experiences. That's hard work. I mean, sometimes it's it's you taking care of them. Sometimes it's them taking care of you. Sometimes it's both of you dealing with the same problem. 
Sometimes both of you are being blindsided, but intimacy is the product of sharing those experiences, of going around the block with each other time and time and time again. You know, I still remember the first kiss. It's great. But greater still is that intimacy and that oneness that is forged through a lifetime. You know, one of those is like a piggy bank. And the other one is like Fort Knox. eHarmony will tell you it's about compatibility. You go to their website right now, say, bet on love. They'll tell you it's compatibility. And listen, compatibility is a great thing. But when the Bible talks about marriage and when Paul talks about marriage, it is not about compatibility. It is about covenant. It is about a covenant you make with your spouse to become one. It is a man with all of his DNA, you know, all of that stuff that makes him a man and not a woman. And it's his hormones, his experiences. It's his fallenness. Becoming one with a woman with all of her DNA that makes her a woman and not a man. And all of her hormones and experiences and even her fallenness. And, and that is extremely hard work. I love the fact that one of the symbols of marriage in, in our culture and other cultures is that uh, you know, there's a diamond in the wedding ring. And when you think about it, did that, that diamond, that beautiful stone that you have on your finger that every time you look at it, feel it, every day of your life reminds that you are married, did that come out of the ground looking like that? No way. I mean, there, were, there was a long time, thousands of years of pressure being applied to a piece of coal. And finally, when it finally turned into a diamond, it wasn't certainly beautiful. It had to be extracted out of the ground. It had to be studied. The flaws had to be exposed. And then it was chipped, and it was cut, and then it was polished. And then finally, it was set into a beautiful mounting, and you wear it on your finger every day. What happened to that diamond to make it beautiful is what happens to a man and a woman in marriage through space and time. It creates oneness in the way that they relate to each other in marriage. So that, that's the meaning of marriage. It's becoming one in a way that reflects the, the, the oneness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit and all that that entails to, to make those people one together. Now, let's talk about number two, the motivation in marriage that Paul talks about in this passage. Big truth number one about marriage. In our world, and especially in our culture, marriage is for everyone and anyone. Super, super easy to get married. Anybody can get married. Everybody can get married. I mean, if you don't believe that, go hang out in Vegas for about 24 hours. I mean, you can even get married by Elvis in 30 minutes if your heart so inclines. Big truth number one, marriage is for everybody. Big truth number two, even marriages that are not Christian can be happy. But what Paul is talking about, Ephesians 5, is what a marriage looks like for disciples of Jesus. And it begins with these words in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't know if you're reading electronically or if you've got the old, you know, the, the, the ancient you know, leather and paper Bibles, but somewhere make a mark to remind yourself to meditate on that word reverence. What does it mean when you say you really revere somebody? 
Because it's out of reverence for Christ that man and woman are going to submit to each other in marriage. What does it mean to revere someone? Well, it means to be in awe of them. It means that when you think about them, you sort of get inspired. It means that you think that they're outstanding, that they're, they're singular and unique in, in their relationship to you. When, you. when you revere somebody, there's something special, there's something of beauty in their life. Now here's the thing when you begin to revere Christ. You begin to think about Christ at sort of this macro level, right? That He is you know, the second person in the Trinity. That He is the Logos, according to John. He is the Word of God made flesh. You think about you know, all, all of the things that He has done at this micro level, and then at the macro level, and then at the micro level, all of that greatness that He is, that's unparalleled anywhere else in the universe, He became like us. He became like us. And when you begin to revere the Christ, you stand in awe of Him because of His submission to the will of God. You, you revere Him and you stand in awe of Him because He emptied Himself. And you think about all of the sacrifices that He made to save us and to change us when He didn't have to. When we didn't deserve it. You know what a philanthropist is, right? They generate so much money in whatever they're doing, maybe oil, maybe shipping, export-import. But they're making so much money, they generate so much money that they, they begin to give it away to bless other people. Now, one of the things that you'll see with a philanthropist is, you know, they're making a lot of money and they're giving this money away, but they're not investing it in such a way that they're going to get some kind of return on their money. They're giving it away. And you know why they're giving it away? It's because they're, they're getting so much here that they can give it away over there. And that's what happens when you begin to live out of reverence for Christ. That's what happens when you revere the Christ. You receive such fantastic blessing after blessing after blessing that that God-shaped hole in your heart is filled up and your heart begins to overflow like a cup will overrun when it can contain no more. And as you see the blessing that comes from his life, you see that it was because he submitted himself. It was because he, he submitted himself to the will of God. It makes, and when you see that, it makes you submissive for the sake of others too. And this is uh, what brings us now to, to the, uh, probably the most controversial piece of this text. And this is what we're going to call the, the method for marriage. You'll notice that the instructions that Paul gives here are not the same for the man and for the woman. And what he's doing is basically in these instructions giving principles. And the first one, we can call it this, headship. And look at verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything is headship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that uh, Christ is the head of man and that God is the head of Christ. That, that Christ lives his, lived his life in submission to God the Father. Now, you, you know, quite frankly, I'm not sure what all of that means, but it means basically this. That God 
had the last word in Christ's life. That God had the last word in Christ's life. It means giving up your rights for someone else. So we think of Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, that long, super long chapter that deals with the, 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 uh, the, the betrayal and, and uh, the garden and, and uh, the, the death of Jesus. And there he is in that garden, having had his last supper. He's crossed Kidron Valley. He's up in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's gone a distance, falling down on his face. He's sweating the teardrops of blood. He's standing on the precipice of, 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 of seeing what his crucifixion, what his life over the next 72 hours is going to look like. And it is, it is so preposterous that a man so good, so righteous, so perfect, so without blemish, so sensitive, and because he was so sensitive, the more it hurt, that he would have to suffer for us the way that he was going to. And he prays in Luke chapter 22, what prayer? Let this cup pass from me. And because he was submissive to God the Father and the will of God the Father. He prayed that prayer, and the answer was, get on with it. The cup's not going to pass. He prayed, let this cup pass, and it didn't. In, in marriage, two disciples of Jesus, women who are living as disciples of Jesus, recognize the headship of their husbands. When there is an impasse and you're having a, a struggle, deciding something, coming up with a solution, the wife submits to the husband. Now, you know, as soon as guys like me say something like that, what happens is, you know, they hear this and they go straight to power, the issue of power and who has it and who doesn't and gender and, all, you know, bad experiences and good experiences. You know, this is one of the passages in the Bible Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33, where we probably bring as much personal baggage to its interpretation as any other passage in the Bible. If you were raised in a good marriage, you have good feelings about this, but there might be a little naivete. If you were raised by a bad marriage, then you might be a little pessimistic, and you, you, you might be realistic, but you're going to be pessimistic. Uh, if, you, if you're in a bad marriage or you're in a good marriage, I mean, whatever it is you're experiencing, you're going to bring it to this passage. And when you hear something like this, the first thing most people do is go straight to the issue of power and who has it and who doesn't. The Holy Spirit recognizes this and jumps all over it. And this leads to the second principle, which is Christ-like love. So beginning in verse 25, he says to the husbands, Love your, your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, without wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Some key words there. Circle these words. Gave himself up for her. Christ died for the church, guys. Christ died for the church. And what this means, fellas, is this. The husband's headship is never to be used to serve himself. That's what happens in the other marriages. We don't love someone 
up to a point and no more. We don't love someone for what we can get out of them. A Christian husband's headship is never to be used to serve himself. And practically speaking, that means that you put the needs of your wife ahead of your own the way that Christ puts the needs of the church ahead of his own. I want to give you two illustrations from my own life. Um, about a year ago, Ellen and I decided that, um, actually she decided that uh, we needed to paint the interior of our home, the, the whole thing. And she had made up her mind on the color that she liked, but it wasn't my first choice. And as the head of our household, I could have said something like, I make the decision on the color of the walls of this house, and it will be my choice. But that would have served me. And why would I use my headship to rob my wife of joy in an area that has no eternal implications for either of us? So what does headship mean? What does it mean? Well, as you know, Ellen and I, uh, back in the uh, late 80s and the 90s, were missionaries in Brazil. And when we moved there, folks, uh, I, I just never really thought that we would ever live in the States again. We burned our packing boxes. We, we burned our moving boxes. We were going to live in Brazil the rest of our lives. Well, after a few years, Ellen developed some, some allergy issues for a couple of years, it was chronic pneumonia, chronic sinusitis, chronic bronchitis, chronic migraines. She was suffering. She knew that doing mission work was at the heart of who I am and who she is. And in spite of what she was going through, knowing how, how much I, I loved it, in spite of what she was going through physically, she never, ever asked me to take her home. Not one time. She's like 100 pounds, but the toughest person I know. She never asked me to take her home because she knew how God had called us there. She had grown up doing this all her life. We loved uh, those people in Brazil that were part of our church. There were people in Brazil that I know without a shadow of a doubt would die for me. She never asked me to take her home. That was my decision. And, and even though I loved it, and that even though she loved it, I made the decision to take her home because health is part of the package and it was the best thing for her and the best thing for our family, even though she wept and argued with me not to do it. But I was the head of that household. And my decisions were not going to be for me. They were going to be for the woman who through vows committed herself to me, and I committed myself to her until death do us part. Took her home, even though she didn't want it. That's Ellen, and that's me. And we 
work this out and continue to work this out in a hundred different ways every, every, every year. And the, the ironic thing about all of this is that there's no specifics, there's no five steps and you know what you're doing when it comes to headship or Christ-like love. You, you, you get the principles down and you work them out in your life. I'm just here to say that, that wives, there's something about submitting to your husbands and husbands, there's something about loving your wives in the same way that Christ loves the church. I mean, the Bible just doesn't recognize a self-serving kind of love anywhere. And when we somehow figure out how to do that, what we have are, 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 are people that when you look at their marriage, you get to see the impact of the Incarnation as people humble themselves and they submit themselves to each other and how they forgive each other and they nurture each other and they love each other and they maintain relationship and it's powerful and it's and it, it's the way to be married together you know it's a weird week this last week i don't, I don't know um, if i've had very many weeks like this but you know on wednesday you know, uh, uh, just a, a rock and, uh, and leader in our church, a shepherd, went to be with God. And in the, 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 the couple of years and, and months and weeks and hours, you know, before his own death, his biggest concerns were his own wife. And three weeks before he died, we said farewell to his wife as she went to be with the father. And last Wednesday, Doug went to be with the father. And then two days later, this last Friday night, Ellen's father, both of these families married 65 years, both of these families very, very godly. Ellen and her mother and sisters and brothers, friends, said goodbye to her father. When I think about you know those, those 65 years together in both of these families and in other examples that you know, you know, one of the things I know that happens is that the, the reason these marriages were so enriching is that these are folks who figured out that it was not about them, it was for the other person that they were married to. That there's a way that you love somebody that brings out the best in them. That there's a way that you love somebody that brings out the very best version of them. And you see not what it is that they are today, but you see what they are in light of eternity because you are a disciple of Jesus and the effects of the gospel are already affecting the way that you live right now. And I guarantee you that there's going to be one day in the future where Doug's and Loda and Doyle and Louise and other people that we know like this who stand before God and they stand before that throne in all of that glory and they receive their resurrection bodies and Doyle will look at Louise and Doug will look at Loda and say, I knew it. I knew it all those years that this was what you were meant to look like. This is what you were meant to look like. And when you think about the way that Christ loves the church, it wasn't just a love that was for the present, which it was that, but it was even more. It was a love for the future of being without stain and wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless and full of love and glory. That's what it means, guys. That's what it means, ladies, for us to be married as disciples of Jesus. It's, well, 
you know me, I, I, I mean, I can talk about, I, I can turn one word into like 10 sermons, and there's so much more to say, but suffice it for this, that what we need to be praying about are these kinds of things in our own life, for our own life. Uh, we're going to offer you an invitation. We're going to sing a song right now, and the invitation is this. Uh, if there's something that's going on in your life that you're struggling with, it's a time to let your family know about it so that we can pray for you. And we can pray for each other as we strive to be what it is that the gospel calls us to be in Christ, the uniting of all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, Ephesians 1.10. Or it might be that, you know, you've decided that the life that you're living is, is really kind of empty. It's it just doesn't have the substance, the meaning, the significance that you would like for it to have. And what you've come to see is that a life without God is no life whatsoever, but a life with God, and not just God, but God is your Father. It's a life to live. We're gonna, we want to help you to understand what that means and how, how it changes your life and how you begin that life. And we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front who want to talk to you about that. And we want you to come forward and to share whatever those needs might be during the singing of this song as we stand and we praise God for His greatness. Let's stand. Let's praise God. Sing them over again, 